0: Today, we discuss data, loyalty, and most importantly, how you can truly understand and better serve your customers. We also plan an Italian art heist, but that's neither here nor there. I'm joined by Ian Dewar, who's had a fantastic career with brands like Specialized, North Face, VF, and now serves as the Senior Director of Global Strategy at Anthropology. His perspective and approach are truly refreshing. Please welcome Ian. <laughs> Welcome to Evolving Industry, a no BS podcast about business leaders who are successfully weaving technology into their company's DNA to forge a better path forward. If you're looking to actually move the ball forward, rather than spinning around in a tornado of buzzwords, you're in the right place. I'm your host, George Jaguzinski. Ian, thanks so much for joining me.
1: George, happy to be here. Nice to see you again.
0: Ian, what I was most excited to talk to you about is you've seemed to do a fantastic you and your teams have done a fantastic job of leveraging data to build great loyalty programs, great customer experience. But what I find when I'm out there in the wild talking to our customers and just hearing from people at conferences and roundtables, the majority of people just seem to be struggling with data and they feel bad about it because they feel like everyone must be doing a great job. What am I doing wrong? And then Combined with that, you know, different policies that are putting privacy policies putting in place that bur- that data that they're not doing anything with is now becoming more of a burden, which makes it that much worse. And, and I, I just um, I'm drawn to the human side where I want to g- bring to them and our audience as much insights as possible. And so I'd love to hear from you a little bit on, on your perspective on what do you think that you've been doing differently that allows you to actually truly leverage data for, for better experiences?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right that that everyone feels a little bit of inferiority when they go to conferences. But like, conference presentations are kind of like Instagram. People only show the good news, right? No one gets up and talks about something that didn't work. So, it, you know, there's a, just there's click a five of, like, Just self- buy our
0: software. <laughs> buy our software. Click five exactly. things, and you can read your customers' <laughs> brains, right?
1: <laughs> we've got we've got the perfect example of how it worked perfectly for us. But you know, no one no one's perfect. But you know, I I will say from from the the day and. I, every time I've worked with has had the same thing. We're missing data here. We don't know this about our customers. What can we add? What can we add? But I I, I think what happens is and brands that start on a data and analytics and especially consumer analytics program don't realize how much they already had. I started this process seven or eight years ago, even yeah, eight, eight, nine years ago at the North Face, we did a pilot. We did a big data pilot back when big data was still the word everyone used instead of you know consumer insights analytics but but we did a big data pilot and we, we were concerned we delayed it a little bit because we were we were scrambling to get budget we were concerned we'd have to spend a lot of money to buy data you know we thought god oh, we're gonna have to buy data from a credit card we're gonna have to buy data from from demographics and we're gonna have to buy data from some sort of behavioral to you know consolidator and, and what we found is is when we started in with our analytics partner they were like give us your CRM send us your email behavior send us your website send us your loyalty. We had 90% of the data that we needed to start analyzing our customers. And that was not even with a super robust customer capture program. We had everyone's address, whoever ordered from us online. We had everyone's email engagement. So what emails they opened, they clicked on and what they bought from. We had people's baskets when they logged into our website. We had their loyalty behavior. We had their loyalty redemption. Did they use a reward certificate? Did they buy something with the reward certificate? So we had all of this information that we hadn't pulled together. It was in you know, a Salesforce database and a CRM database and a loyalty database. And we hadn't put it all into one place and said, we're gonna match Ian Dewar's record across seven different digital touch points and then look at what we know about him. And that that was really eye-opening to us. And I think any brand could do that. You know, any brand could, could take that point of saying, we've got customer databases in multiple places. And I, I still hear stories of brands whose POS retail doesn't match up to their e retail, which doesn't add up to their app checkout retail. And so all of a sudden, they've got three separate transaction logs and three separate sets. But, but a lot of that data already exists. So I, I think the, the, the first sort of hurdle towards this consumer shift to consumer analytics is just taking the time to look at what you have and starting there and, and, and recognizing that you know, no brand knows everything about the customer. No brand knows what you're doing, where you're walking. Uh, Google knows where you're walking because they're tracking your phone. But no brand knows everything about where you are, knows everything about what you buy, knows everything about your behavior. And so that starting point of looking at what you already know or already have to piece together to say what you already know is really something that I think any brand that has, and direct-to-consumer obviously is, is more relevant than a brand that sells primarily into wholesale, but any brand that has that direct-to-consumer component has a lot of their starting point data. They just need to put it together into one place.
0: Mm. And that sounds easier said than done, I think, for most people, right? That you know, Even within your own organization, connecting it from the stores to the e you know, is this the same, Ian? Never mind if you have, 10, 100 different products and brands, and, and how do you connect those? I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many organizations we've gone in and they've had some like enterprise ID project that's been going on for a year where they're just trying to connect everyone and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I'm curious your experience, like how do you get, how do you push that over the line to actually connect the dots?
1: There's a combination of, of internal and external partners that, that really make that happen. Um that that, and they cost money, you know, I mean, I think the initial the initial setup is going to be something that the brands need to really think about what the ROI component of that is and, and and what the benefit is, but but the the ROI component is very easy to calculate when you look at future sales opportunity. you know, if you look at increasing your frequency by one one visit per year or increasing your basket size by ten percent and start to extrapolate out what the benefit could be by being more relevant to your customers it's pretty easy to cost justify the work to to do that and i think that the challenge is, is sort of setting an expectation for what is correct you know and 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 to some extent that's a big hurdle for a lot of companies because they don't want to be wrong i mean we've all heard stories about target sending emails about baby clothes to a teenager who's pregnant and, oh no we did the data wrong and i think probably half of your listeners have probably received an email at some point from one of these photo book saying, celebrate your wedding, celebrate your baby. And they're like, I didn't get married. (laughs) I didn't have a baby. And, you know, so the risk of being wrong, you know, certainly exists. But more than that, like, understanding kind of what's possible with clear connection, and knowing that in some cases, you know, If Jane Smith gets married and moves from New York City to Philadelphia and changes her last name and gets a new phone and gets a new job, we might not be able to connect those two dots right away. And and that's also okay, you know. And so being able to say, like, this is how we want to understand our customers. We want to understand our customers that are engaging with us most. And the customers that are engaging with us most are giving us the most data. And at some point at the bottom, we're going to we're going to. We're not going to match every single person to every single record, but that's actually okay because what we want to do is understand the people that want to engage with us most. And I, if, you know, I, I liken this sometimes to how you like have personal relationships, but right? you want to be friends with the people who want to be friends with you. And you like to have conversations with the people that are interested in what you're talking about. And our businesses are the same. Like the customers that engage with us the most give us the most data. Therefore, we understand them the most. And they're already sort of raising their hand to say, I like your brand. I like your brand. I I open your emails. I go to your website. I log into your app. I like you. Now the onus is on us as brands to say, you've sort of given us that input into your life shopping behavior. Now we should take advantage of that to show you the type of product we believe you you like.
0: Yeah, and and those users are easier to connect the dots across all those different channels because you have more information. Man, it's funny. It reminds me, even just internally, of and this happens everywhere. From a people management perspective, you you always fall into the pitfall of just focusing on the people who aren't performing, rather than focusing on the people who are are the high performers. It's just a, such a human thing. It seems that we all fall into. You know, one thing that I've we we've experienced at our our customers when we're talking about that, how do we connect the dots? A lot of times we go in and it's kind of it's kind of a side project rather than a, a a really important project. And maybe part of that's the ROI hasn't been mapped to it. But my observation is, is each group's just try, kind of trying to hit their own number. Like the stores want to hit their number. Ecom wants to hit their number, you know, and everyone's marching to their own thing. And, and that's why it becomes a side project because like they just need to do their thing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we should get to that. It's almost like, yeah, I should floss more. And, and I'm curious if you have any like insights or stories from the trenches on how do you get those groups who like, sometimes view themselves as competitive, kind of marching to the same drum.
1: I mean, I, th- that's absolutely, absolutely a problem. And I'll tell you where, where I work today at Anthropology, we are very uh, cognizant of of our customers' behavior with us is the reaction to where they want to be. So if they shop online, if they come to the store, if they order off the app, if they buy from TikTok shop, I mean, all of those things are fine with us. And 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 not that there's... Not that, you know, we have a retail goal. We have an e-commerce goal. Within e-commerce, we have, we have an app expectation, but we're not fighting each other. And I, I mean, I'll give you a good example. I worked for a Brand years ago where, where I, I got pulled into the head of store's office because she was upset that we were sending emails out with a retail focus saying, you know, come to the store near you. And we showed product in the email. And her, her concern was, I said, well, what's the problem? We have the link at the bottom with the picture of the store and the click to the map, but we're showcasing you know, our most exciting product. She goes, what if they click on it and buy it? <laughs> and I said, great. And she's like, no, then you're stealing our customer. And we had to like, really walk through the idea that an e- a, a customer who starts in a store, who then receives an email, who clicks on the email and buys something from the website is not bad for the business. And there's, and
0: there's so, a you know, CEO, get, there's a CEO or C R O somewhere that just like died a small death when, when they heard that.
1: <laughs> or says, oh, I did that too. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think the thing today is that we're recognizing anthropology. We have relatively high frequency of repeat purchase with, with our best customers. But we're recognizing today that that it's not on us to tell our customer where to shop. It's on us to make that shopping experience easier, no matter where they want to shop. And and to that end, actually, over the last you know, COVID, COVID kind of accelerated that with buy online, pick up in store, curbside delivery, ship from store, all these different operations. But but one of the biggest things that we, we shifted in the last two years was we've made it easier to return more products to our stores. We used to only allow returns to stores of products we sold in stores. So footwear, some of our kitchen, other items like that, that customers, you know, that we, the stores didn't sell, the stores wouldn't take back. And we've completely shifted that. We've revamped the whole return to DC process to say, hey, our customers, can. we want to be where they are. And if they want to order online and return to store and try it in store, but order from an iPad or have it shipped to a different store or send it to a friend, all of those are possible. And I think that that shift in mentality of counting customers and counting customers and revenue as a roll up first and then dividing it by channel, product category, accessory edition, et cetera, is the way to start to look at that because that customer that shops with you once if you get them to shop with you twice and you get them back for a third purchase no matter where that is you've started to create a sticky behavior and that's what you want it's not you want sticky store sticky web sticky app you want a sticky brand
0: evolving industries brought to you by entephi we bring order to chaos wherever people process and technology converge our culture drives our solutions and we are solution obsessed. We see every challenge as an opportunity, every partner as a collaborator and every project has a chance to share our values and commitment to excellence. Give us a shout. We'd love to hear your challenges and turn them into opportunities. Find out more at Intevity.com. Now back to the show. I love that. Yeah. And, and, Something that we talked about before that really drives that is that you focus on what will the customers actually use versus what can we sell them or what will they buy? And and I'm curious, like what that philosophy, what does that do for you? How does that impact the way that you're, you're building experiences? How does that impact the way you're leveraging data for products? Like, tell me a little bit about that, about, you know, what. You know, products people I mean, use. For me,
1: that's been our philosophy on on consumer analytics from from the time we launched this big data pilot with with North Face years ago. Our our big learning there was that customers buy product in the same category on a pretty regular basis. If you're buying ski jacket from from the North Face, you're probably more likely to buy ski pants from the North Face than you are a a backpack. But they also Buy in the category of product that they will use, and so what we did is we really started to focus on what customers do with the product, not what they bought from us. And the, what you do with the product, and this is this is true for North Korea, it's true for us with Anthropology, it's true for for other brands. of work that what you do with the product really helps us shape what the next best product for you could be or should be. And and you know what we found, and it's it's even more true now at at Anthropology, is that people have personal style and there's regional style. And so we sell a a, a medium length and, and full length dress called Somerset at, at, at Anthropology. It's one of our best selling dresses. It comes in multiple styles, multiple fabrics, multiple prints. And, and what we find is depending on where the customer lives, New York City, San Francisco, Denver, Colorado, where I live, they style it completely different. And so this whole idea that 60% of people who buy a, a Somerset would like a insert you know blazer or jacket here it's not relevant for the whole country and so for us what we really needed to look at was all this additional data when i worked at at the north face we focused on activity data like are you a runner are you a hiker are you a skier do you use north face product for like hanging out with your family or do you use it for your own sort of more hardcore adventures and same thing at anthropology Are you buying our product for yourself to go to work, to go to a party, for your everyday life? And then what else do you do in your everyday life? And that helps us kind of not just complete the look, but really, really kind of complete the closet. And that part of of your, your in real life behavior becomes that much more important to us and helps us as we start to think about building customer profiles. It's not just what you bought and how much you spent. It's what we actually think you're going to do with it.
0: Interesting, And then that, that probably helps you build, I'm assuming just models to, to find similarities, overlaps between different groups yeah. and all that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what we find is that there's, there's sort of, there's product category similarities, there's style similarities and there's end use similarities. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is that, is that again, anthropology you know, there's some correlation between certain prints and styles of home decor items and certain prints and styles of fashion items. They're not in the same group. It's not the same fabric, but customers who like sort of a set of prints over here on apparel like a set of prints over here on, on home decor because it carries over in that style. And so starting to look at kind of some of these similarities, because our goal with data analytics, it's, you said it earlier, it, we're not trying to trick people into buying something they don't need. You know, and this was this, I, I started my career in, in in consumer analytics and marketing in cycling. And, when, and this is going to sound super obvious when I say this. But if you sell someone a bike, they don't ride, they do not buy another bike. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so the way you get someone to buy another bike or to upgrade their bike is to provide them opportunity to have, a fun cycling experience. And so the company I work for, Specialized Bicycles, but the company I worked for made a big investment in bike fit technology, because what we realized was if a customer was more comfortable on their bicycle, they were more likely to ride that bike, and then they were more likely to buy another bike. And so, and so while this sounds super obvious when I say that, it's true as we transfer over to outdoor equipment and apparel at the North Face, or apparel and decor items at Anthropology, if you don't like what you bought and you don't use what you bought, you're not gonna come back and and buy more. And so for us, this whole idea of, of you know quick sale, quick sale, that's not as nearly as relevant as us thinking about how do we help our customers build sort of either their their home decor or their closet so that they start to come back and say, Oh, I can use this item again and again. It has more value to me. And now I feel a stronger affinity towards the brain.
0: That makes so much sense. Yeah, I kind of like to dig into the cycling thing. Just myself as an avid cyclist and my friends and I not just talk about our bikes, but, but having a, like an entire stable of bikes. Man, if there's one customer base out of any that I've experienced in my life that is willing to just spend a tremendous amount of money, like like hey, I could lose 5 pounds or I could get this super awesome carbon fiber component for God knows how much money, I'm going to buy that thing, right? Like I'm curious like like in that world, would you did that group have a name? Like would you focus on that that group that you know that super high performer?
1: So it's interesting because there's like two levels of that super high performer. There's the team racer club racer, and then there's the super enthusiast. And the team Racer club racer wants new product every year. And they're generally sponsored by a shop, and there's some level of like, you know, sort of price benefit for being associated with a shop, and they're looking to get new technology every year. But the real opportunity is in the sort of high enthusiast, right? The hardcore rider. And and that hardcore rider, is you're exactly right, that's the opportunity to build kind of the repeat purchase, not upgrade purchase, but because what happens in the upgrade purchase is the customer sells their bike into the secondary market and buys a new bike, buy a new road bike, buy a new mountain bike. But the person who buys the used road bike is now not going to buy a new bike. So so in in the total scheme of like bike sales, you're one out, one in. Therefore, it's a missed opportunity for the bike company to sell a bike to the customer who bought the used one. They're only selling into the new. But the opportunity is to get that customer into a new category of product. In the last, like 10 years ago, a lot of that was triathlon. Starting five years ago, a lot of it is gravel today. And so this whole idea that if you're an avid mountain biker and you want to sort of expand your riding opportunity gravels here for you now. So now here's a new type of bike for you. And, and, and that's certainly, I mean, the bike companies recognize that there's only so many riders and yes, COVID caused a huge increase in that rider base when you couldn't go to the gym and you couldn't go to work and you had more free time, people all went and bought bikes. Now we're back to kind of normal. So this bike bike build opportunity is, is category extension. How do we get someone who mountain bikes or road bikes? to buy a gravel bike? How do we get someone who rides a gravel bike to try cyclocross racing and buy a racing bike? You know, all of this. So that, that's your growth opportunity for sure in cycling is to take that high enthusiast and expand their sort of field of vision of, of, of riding opportunities.
0: Yeah, I love that. I'm curious to pick your brain a little bit on maybe some techniques or examples. Then how do you lean into the, the whole human? Um, And and this applies to everything, but I'm going to stick on the bike thing just for a second because, you know, as someone with a triathlon bike and a road bike and a city bike, like a lot of those, then once I had my daughter and moved out to the burbs, started collecting a lot of dust, you know, I'm a little bit more fearful on the road and now I am a gravel bike guy. Right. And, And like there are these life milestones, you know, even at anthropology, like my, so just bringing it to the future, my little brother lived in LA when he would come out and visit me in Boston, he would have just fashion shell shock. You'd be like, what the heck is going on in here, Boston versus LA? But like, you know, I would imagine after someone does move, you know, and and once they're like kind of like getting into that that area's style a little bit more, then then their likes might change. And you know, long way to ask, like, how do you focus on the whole human and kind of where they are and where they're going?
1: So, I mean, I think that that that's true. At, I mean, all three of the brands I referenced, like whether you're talking bike business or outdoor, like North Face or even, or even Anthropology. This is part of the opportunity for brand extension that that you know direct consumer companies realized ten years ago, right? If you're at Anthropology, we are expanding into sort of non-core traditional things that we wouldn't have sold ten years ago: sneakers, swim, getaway, sunscreen. We have a huge sunscreen business. Who knew? But we have a huge sunscreen business. Um, but what we're, what, you know, what we've recognized is that if a customer trusts us for core categories they're going to trust us for other categories and if they look at us as as fashion forward for women's apparel then they're going to acknowledge that that we're also you know and, and we we're trying to be fashion forward for sneakers and 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 all of this additional accessories but they're they they see that from us and there's a level of trust that already exists and i i think some brands sometimes get too let's put this get get too excited about it and they put they slap their brand label on everything possible. You know, what I mean? and, and, and I think that's a as you think about what your brand is really good at and known for, and what other things your customers care about, that's where your opportunity for brand extension really exists. Specialized, you know, moved into shoes pretty aggressively about 15 years ago and is now, you know, one of the premium, you know, absolute premium shoe cycling shoe components across North America. And 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 they made a, a substantial investment in both improving the rider's experience through the shoe and understanding the technology that went into a cycling shoe. What what shoes need a carbon sole? What angle does the footbed need to lead at? Do different people have different different sort of footbed components and necessity in there and and, and how do they understand? And they end up mapping thousands of people's feet to then understand like What's the starting point for a shoe that will fit most people? And what can be done with in, in footbed technology to then make that, that shoe comfortable for the outliers on both sides? And, and that's a substantial investment in a new category. And I think that's something that, that sometimes brands think, hey, we can, you know, we're popular in, in category A. Let's just jump into B and C. You know, there was, there was North Face sunglasses for a while. Bad idea, right? You know, and and it went away, you know, and, and and I think that's the, that's sort of, as you think about, you know, as brands think about how they increase their relevance with their customers. This is where kind of the other side of, of consumer analytics fits in. And, and, you know, this is more on the consumer insights, but like talk to your customers, find out what they care about and, and find out where else they're shopping, what else they're buying. You don't need to know where every single one of your customers is shopping. A, a survey, customer intercepts, focus groups, et cetera, will give you a starting point. But you know, if you understand more about what your customers care about, then you can then the brands can really think about what the right brand extension or the next brand evolution should be to increase your relevance and increase relevance in the customer's closet or, or home overall.
0: Yeah. And and if you have the, the great kind of mechanism set up to continually learn from those customers, you know, I don't think it's a bad idea to try these new things. You want to try new categories. You want to try licensing deals, partnerships, but where, where everyone falls flat is where they they just let that run too long. Right. And they're they're not listening and shutting it down quickly. And so that that makes a lot of sense to me in that. To make that work you really need to be connected across the various functional groups within the organization. You know, you had talked earlier about um you know working across the different channels. But where I see organizations really struggle is you got, you know, your analytics group, you got your your e-com group, you got marketing, you got brand, you know. I'm seeing a lot more organizations really focus around brand more recently than they than they have ever. But I I'm curious your You know, some of your lessons from the trenches on uh, how do you get that cooperation across those functional groups?
1: You mean I I think it's it's a challenge because especially in emotionally led organizations, there is a generally a strong point of view on communication strategy and a strong point of view on product strategy. And that that, those are both driven by people who generally have had years of experience and understand kind of what they think that customer wants to see. And to have someone from data and analytics come in and go, well, actually, our customers' average age is forty six years old, and our customers' average, you know, home value is seven hundred thirty thousand dollars, and our average customer drives a BMW. Like that's not the that's not necessarily what they're looking to understand. And you know, I think that that sort of threading that needle of art and science is is that's the future of 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 where data analytics professionals are going to accept is is being able to say, you know. Your company might not be entirely data driven, but it is data informed. And we are using both our customers known behavior. What did they buy? There's no, like, there's no ambiguity there. We sold X units of product Y and we sold them in these regions. And the average age of the customer who bought them was this, right? That's sort of irrefutable. But to flip it around, and this is where insights and qualitative research becomes super important is start to find out why and then start to find out what's missing and i think that's one of the things that gets lost sometimes in straight up quantitative analytics around customer behavior is you're analyzing what the customer did not what they wanted to do and you know so it's hard to judge missed sales opportunity when you run out of a certain size of a product it's hard to judge sales opportunity when you don't sell certain products in certain stores right you know your our shoe sales are obviously higher in the stores where we have a broader collection of shoes <laughs> so, <clears throat> and it's not necessarily because customers in st louis don't want to buy shoes from anthropology it's maybe because we don't have shoes in our st louis store you know and so if you start to look at this and uh, start to look at this level of customer behavior understanding kind of the motivation and being able to then look at missed opportunity in addition to what the sales data shows you is gonna help way better understand and sort of size that future opportunity. And that's where I think the partnership on doing this research, it really needs to include the end users of the data. And so one of the things that we do, and this is the same as, as, as work we did when I worked at the North Face, but it, at Anthropology, we very much include our product partners and our marketing partners as we develop our research hypotheses way before we go out into the field or way before we go out and start to talk to our customers, because we don't want to do research they don't want to use.
0: Yeah. And, and even and even, even if it is the same research you were going to do, they're now at least they feel invested in it as you're going out there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah
1: no, no, absolutely. And, and we also, we reserve space in our calendar for questions that come up, you know, unknowns that maybe we didn't initially sort of plan around, but... We we recently did a, a pretty extensive customer census at anthropology, for example, and that we surveyed a million of our customers. We got a, a pretty high percentage of, of them to reply to. We asked them about their their shopping behavior, the brands that they like, where else they shop, where they live, what they do, what they, you know, what what they do with their families, and really to just better understand overall lifestyle behavior. But there were a bunch of questions that came out of that as we worked with our head of merchant merchant or a head of product for home and the apparel business that that prompted us to hey we need to do a deeper dive into some specific components here because we've seen opportunities now we want to size that opportunity so how do we see and size that opportunity but because we were attached to the business from the very beginning the research feels a lot more appropriate to what the business feels is possible and i and i think sometimes and again you know in in, in data especially." Analysts get focused on what they see the data saying, and not necessarily how the business can use that data. And so, having that partnership with the business, and on the marketing side, having that partnership with the creative, you know, side of it is that's that's where the art and science need to work together. I mean, we're not going to let we're a very emotional brand. North Face is a very emotional brand. We're not going to let AI pick our pick the pictures for an Instagram (laughs) post, for example, right? You know, and that's very very considered as truthfully it should be. You know, and I think there's there's definitely opportunities to inject AI into product recommendations, into merchandising, into outfitting. But at the whole, we're still working together with how do we tell a story? And how do we tell a story and understand what story our customers are most likely to respond to?
0: That's great. And maybe you just answered this, but I do want to poke into it. I'm curious if if you could share how you got such a high response rate. Was it that just because the it, it was collaboration between product and creative and data, or was there something else you could tell me without killing me?
1: In terms of our, our customers, why our customers love love talking about our brand. You know, I think the the, and part of that is we have a, we, again, we have a pretty high frequency of purchase from customers who come to anthropology, especially customers who come back year over year. Big component of our business is our core active best customer. Um, but you know, we, I think there's two things. One, our customers really look at the uniqueness of anthropology and see it as a store that's different from everywhere else they shop. And as such, they like to tell us about why they like it. But secondly, they've also seen over time, especially customers that have replied to previous surveys or have been involved in other research we've done that we really try to act on what our customers tell us. And so there's a level of, of sort of investment in providing feedback because our customers actually believe that that we will respond to that and that that you know they will ultimately I I I mean I'm extrapolating a little bit, but that they they will they will ultimately have a better shopping experience to see more product of, that they like if they tell us their opinion.
0: That's a great lesson in there, Ian, because I think it applies even just internally to our own organizations. Like we do our own employee surveys and and things like that. And, and I think anytime that anyone is, with customers or employees, you're not getting a response rate, you're looking for some sort of quick fix, but really it's the hard work and loyalty and engagement and then listening and actually acting on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. No, I agree. Absolutely. And, and I think the... The idea of a brand evolving both the products they sell, also how their load program runs, also how they engage with customers based on customer feedback. And then saying that out loud tells the customers, you know, we care about your opinion. We're not just trying to get you to buy more from us.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, another couple questions, Ian. One is, and a little bit of a shift here, is you've been doing some interesting work with Drexel leveraging interns and and. and- you know, I think a lot of organizations out there aren't tapping into some truly untapped talent that's out there, and, and I'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit and, and how you've been able to lean into that.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, I love our co-op program. We we work with Drexel has a most most students in their business school do a five year program where they have two or three six month internships over their five years before they get their degree, and we typically bring two of them into into my org. Every year, uh, an insights more more consumer insights focused and a more analytics focused intern. The insights isn't always out of school business. You know, they may be from psychology, they may be from fashion. The analytics side is generally from school of business. Someone who's studying statistics, math, and business analytics. They come in. We have a desk for them. We have real projects for them. I mean, literally, we're switching interns every six months. So there's generally about a week gap. So it's a it's a effectively a permanent position for us, just a new body every six months in, in that. But we're having them work on real projects and, and deliver things that get presented all the way up to president of our business and even our CEO. And so we it's not a, a make work project. It's truly someone who adds to our team. But our opinion is, is you know, if we can provide Sort of some direction. Yes, we get a benefit because we get work done that, that we would ordinarily have to hire someone else out of, but we can also use that as an opportunity to look for future employees. We've hired three people, I think, in the last four years out of Drexel Co-ops. It co-op with us or potentially with one of the other brands where we're, you know, our parent company also owns Urban Outfitters and free people. And it gives us not just a, a tryout per se, but it's an opportunity for you know, a, a a future graduate to get real business experience and understand, is this the type of place they want to work? And are they the type of person that we would like to hire? And so I think it's a huge benefit there. And, you know, in addition to that, I think you, you're sort of alluding to this. I love having younger employees, current college students, or, or sometimes we've hired MBA interns in the past, like to tell us how they shop. You know, I mean, I think there's a big gap between what we see, and I can go to the store, and I can talk to the customers, and I can look at their data. But to ask someone, you know, how do you and your friends shop? What stores do you go to? When you go to the mall, what's your behavior? It's really interesting for us to have people who are now interested in sort of helping anthropology, but have a completely different perspective than someone like me who's you know, worked in in direct consumer businesses for twenty five years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people, they just feel like this is going to be a burden on top of their day job when it's quite the opposite as you're experiencing. And the, no, the energy true. and thinking that it injects into yeah. the group is yeah. just.
1: yeah. We're actually doing if We did a project with a graduate school class last year at Drexel on on and we sort of did an analytics challenge. Then we gave them a bunch of customer data and we said, you know, help us understand the impact of regional style, weather, a couple other variables. And we left it really open ended. We went in and presented about our business and then they came down to campus three months later and told us what they found. And I thought it was great. And so, you know, for us, Drexel is a, is a good partner because it's really close to us. But I love the idea of, of working with, with university students and, and having you know, our co-op program is not exclusive or our intern program is not exclusive to Drexel, obviously, but having kind of that, that level of new ideas and an opportunity, I think an opportunity for you know, sort of future graduates to try out, like, like, do they want to work for us? You know, I mean, I, I would recommend to anyone who was, who is getting ready to graduate to like, do as much research as possible on where you want to work, not just go in and, you know, the, you don't go in an interview, like kind of begging to get a job, like really interview the company that's interviewing you.
0: Yeah, there's plenty of opportunities out there. You have to find the right one. So, Ian, I always like to finish these on a fun question, which is in in life or work, anywhere, personal business, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: I, I would say the best advice is is just say yes. People ask you to do something, try it. If someone suggests that you take on a project, do it. Someone like wants you to to move into a new category of men and you're like, I don't know that product very well, just say yes and try it out. You know, and I think that is something that that I've tried to Instill that in sort of my professional and personal development, but also I'm, I'm I have two kids. I I coach a girls eight year old soccer team and a boys baseball team, and 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 I I listen to the kids, and sometimes they ask the most inane questions, and I think like kids hear no 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 a lot. So so if you can say yes more often, I think I'm all for that, you know. And and I would say the same thing in in through a professional career, if you can take on a new challenge, and someone asks you to do something, and it's not, I mean, it's not someone offloading their work onto you, take it. You don't know exactly how to do it, figure it out. And I mean, think for me, I mean, I started my job. I I got a master's degree in economics, and I turned down a job with the Canadian government, and I went to Europe to lead bicycle tours, and then I got offered. A position in the education department and at a university in in, in toronto and, and i thought about it and i and i and i also turned that down to design bicycle tours and i thought God, what am i my parents were like what are you doing and i i evolved from sort of leading bike tours to writing marketing material to taking photographs to then analyzing the customer database of the bicycle tour guests to then you know designing these loyalty programs for bike companies and it was always because someone said, hey, do you want to take on, hey, do you think you can look at our data and figure out who's most likely to come back and, and go on another trip? I went, Absolutely, I can. And then I like looked at the data and then I did a bunch of research to figure out how to analyze it. And I think that that idea that opportunities will show up if you are present for them and that you're not going to, you're not, you're probably, you know, think about these university graduates. You're probably not going to be doing 10 years from now what you studied in class. Today. And so I would say, like, if someone presents an opportunity to you, take it and figure out how to how to do the work once you get it.
0: I love that. And so then that leads to my I do have a surprise question then, which is, Ian, would you like to go to Italy with me and become art thieves? You have to say yes. You have to say yes.
1: <laughs> I would love that, actually. I would, I would love that. Um, <laughs> yes. But only if we can drive the little Mini Coopers when we're done.
0: And you have to learn how to jump through lasers like Catherine Zeta-Jones. Okay.
1: I can do that. I, I, I how hard could it be?
0: <laughs> Off to limber up. Ian, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Evolving Industry. For more, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and pretty please drop us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're watching or listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and smash the bell button for notifications. If you know someone who's pushing the limits to evolve their business, reach out to the show at or Reach out to me, George Jagosinski, on LinkedIn. I love speaking with people getting the hard work done. The business environment's always changing, and you're either keeping up or going extinct. We'll catch you next time, and until
1: then, keep evolving.